0: Philippians chapter 1, verses 27-30 to Whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then, whether I come and see you, or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in the one spirit, striving together as one for the faith of the gospel, without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. This is a sign to them that they will be destroyed, but that you will be saved, and that by God. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for him, since you are going through the same struggle you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. Good morning, everyone. It's really nice to be back in the flesh, so to speak, instead of on a Zoom screen. I also knew Sam Hanlon, and uh, from the description that you got this morning, you would think he was an absolute paragon of virtue, but there's another side to Sam Hanlon. (laughs) He had a very mischievous sense of humor, and he was speaking at Brunsfield, um, and uh, he was speaking on 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and The Gifts of the Spirit. And a lady came and spoke to him afterwards. You might not even know this story. A lady came and spoke to him afterwards and said, Mr. Hanlon, um, you, you didn't mention my gift. And Sam said, um, and what's your gift? She said, if I see somebody stepping out of line, I give him a right good telling off. <laughs> and Sam said, <laughs> Sam said, the Lord won't mind if you hide your light under a bushel. <laughs> she wasn't happy. <laughs> What a lovely man, and it was so nice to see, see his picture again on the screen. Philippians chapter 1, um, I would like to put in a formal complaint to the elders of this church. Every time I come here, you give me all the easy passages. Um, I would like to speak on the feeding of the 5,000 or something like that, just one time when I come, or maybe Zacchaeus up the tree, um, but no, it's Philippians one twenty-seven to 30, um, what makes this such a challenging passage is it's being written by a man who is in a position of suffering himself. He's warning other believers that they are also going to suffer, and he's telling them that in the middle of all that suffering, whatever happens, continue to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is, this is not an easy passage to face up to, but That's the good thing about doing consecutive Bible teaching. You don't get to take the difficult passages and hide them under a carpet and move on to the next easy one. You have to face up to the truths that are being taught, even in the difficult ones. So let's just take a look at this together. And it begins, whatever happens, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Oh dear whatever happens. So are we saying that there's uncertainty in the Christian life? Are we saying that there's going to be challenges ahead? There's going to be surprises for us, disappointments. If we were to go back and actually look at the story of how the church was established in Philippi, we would see it was a very confusing journey. If we went back to uh, Acts chapter 13, you would see that Paul and Barnabas are members of a church in Antioch, um, not far from the the city of Aleppo today, and uh, there they were called by God. The elders were asked to set them apart to go on a missionary journey. Now, Barnabas was a, a Cypriot, and his first call as a missionary was to go, oddly enough, to Cyprus. Well, they took a young man with them. It was actually uh, uh, Barnabas's nephew, Mark, uh, John Mark. And they, they took him and they went to Cyprus and they preached the gospel all the way around the south side of Cyprus. And then they took, the, they took the boat to go north to what is today Turkey and was then called Pamphylia in Asia Minor. And when they got there, Mark said, I'm out of my comfort zone here. This is new territory for me. I'm out of here. And left them and went back to Antioch. Well, probably just as well that he left them because when they got to Poseidon Antioch, which is right in the middle of Asia Minor, there they preached the gospel in the, in the synagogue. And they were beaten up and thrown out of the city. So they said, well, maybe we'll head east. So they went east and they went to Lystra and to Iconium, and to Derby, and exactly the same thing happened. They preached the gospel, they were beaten up and thrown out of the city. And when they got to the end of that journey, Paul said, let's go back and we'll just encourage the believers that we did make. And, and they went back through the same cities and then went back to Antioch. By the time you get to Acts chapter 15, Paul says, I think we should go back and encourage these these believers in the little embryonic churches that we established in Asia Minor. And Barnabas says, I'll tell you what, why don't we take John Mark with us? Paul says, there's no way I'm taking him. He chickened out the last time. And we're told in Acts 15, there was such a sharp disagreement between these two godly missionaries that they couldn't make up their minds what to do. And in the end, Barnabas took John Mark back to Cyprus, and Paul took a young man called Silas, and they set off on the journey to go backwards through Lystra and Derby and Iconium and so on. Now that's interesting. Who was right? They got a disagreement. Somebody's got to be wrong, no? Well, it was very interesting. You see, John Mark and Barnabas were both Cypriots and they went to preach the gospel in Cyprus. It was the making of John Mark. But Silas and Paul were both Roman citizens. Little did they know that they were going to take the gospel all the way into Europe and that when they got to Philippi, they'd be thrown in jail. Well, you can't throw Roman citizens in jail without a trial. And so they had to be set free. And all the way through that disagreement and confusion, God was actually working out his will the whole way along. So who was right? God was right. Now, here's the challenge, though. When they finished the bit they thought they were going to do, when you get to the middle of Acts 16, Paul says, why don't we take the gospel north? We'll go up to Bithynia, which is on the coast of the Black Sea. Let's take the gospel there. And something was stopping them. They just, it was very confusing. But whatever happens, live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, in their confusion, they stopped. And Paul had a dream. And in that dream, he received the Macedonian call. And he discussed it with his fellow travelers. And he said, I think the Lord wants us to go west, not north. Well, how confusing is that? They went all the way west and they they sailed from Troas and they went up to Samothrace. And from Samothrace they went to Philippi. And now this is new territory. My goodness, if Pamphylia was scary, Philippi was even scarier. It was the second biggest city in the Roman Empire. It had a huge amphitheater and a university and a, and a road that ran all the way around the Macedonian Way. Scary stuff. What was even more scary for a very traditional Jew, there was no synagogue. You needed to have ten men to have a synagogue. They just made that up. It's not in the Bible. But you needed to have ten men. So it wasn't ten Jewish men. So they thought, well, where will we find people that are actually believers? And they were told, but if you go to the river, uh, then people meet there for prayer. And the first convert is a woman. A woman. They've come all this way to take the gospel into Europe. And the Lord makes the first convert a woman. Not only a woman, a Gentile woman. She's not even Jewish. Not only that. She says, I want you to come and stay in my house. So now they're going to go and be the guests of a woman who's a Gentile. Well, the Lord had been training them all the way along. And he explained to them, there is no male nor female. There's no Jew nor Greek. Everyone is the same value to God. Well, he went and stayed in the house of Lydia from Thyatira. And here it was okay. And then there was a second convert. There's was another woman. What is God doing? Well, they've only got two converts. Both of them aren't Jews. Both of them aren't men. And then they get thrown in jail. Well, this is going great, isn't it? This is the big campaign to take the gospel into Europe. And they've got their ankles and their wrists chained to the floor. So Paul turns to Silas and he says, I know what we should do. We'll have a sing song. (laughs) And Silas says, you start. So the two of them start singing praises to God. Whatever happens, do you you get the, the thrust of these two words? Whatever happens, live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's exactly what they were doing. Now, you've got to bear in mind, Paul and Silas did not have a copy of the New Testament. They did not know what God was going to do next. All they knew was, we've got two female converts. We're stuck in Europe. We're in jail. This is just great. But they sang God's praises in these circumstances. And as a result of that faith, God takes the whole city of Philippi and he shakes it until the jail collapses. Guess who the third convert is? The jailer that put them in jail in the first place. I mean, you have to see that God has a sense of humor. Well, the jailer doesn't just become a Christian. His whole family becomes Christians. But then they get thrown out of the town. And they must have looked back and thought, Is that it? Is that, is that the church in Philippi? Is that what God wanted? Was that his plan? All that travel, all that beating up, getting thrown in jail, was for one family and for two women. Well, He's writing to the church in Philippi. He's writing them a letter because they're an established church. It was all part of God's master plan. Whatever happens. I'd like to read a a parallel scripture, which is, again, it's not an easy scripture to read, but it's there, so we should just face up to the truth of it. John chapter 16, and it's the very last verse of John chapter 16, before Jesus prays the famous prayer in John 17 in Gethsemane. And he says this, I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. I'll just read it to you again. In this world, you will have trouble. Wouldn't it be great if it said you might have trouble? (laughs) But it's not what it says. It says you will have trouble. But, I like it in the King James, fear not, for I have overcome the world. God takes... Great delight when in challenging circumstances we endeavor to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of Christ. And going back to the the Philippians verse, uh, verse 28, it says, Without being frightened in any way by those who oppose you. I I would say that fear is, is just a natural consequence of challenge. It's very easy for us to, to quote the famous statistic that there are 366 times in the Bible that we are told to fear not. So you can actually have fear not as your morning verse for the entire year, even in a leap year. And you would think that by the end of that year, you wouldn't be frightened anymore. I've been a Christian for 50 years and I still worry. That's a terrible confession. But it's just the way it is. We still worry. And if we were to define worry as believers, it's about losing perspective. It's about losing a sense of perspective about how big God is, how much God loves you. And you can see the problem as being bigger than your God. Now, I'm going to take you to the Valley of Elah. The Valley of Elah is about 10 miles west of Jerusalem. You can still go there today and you can see the hills on either side and a little stream that runs through the middle of the valley. Well, back in 1 Samuel 17, you would have seen the Philistines on one side of that stream and you would have seen the uh, Israelis on the other side of the, the stream and you would have seen an enormous giant coming out from the Philistines and challenging everyone. And then you would have seen this little guy... On the other side, coming forward, and he doesn't even have a sword. He's got a sling. Now, he's been down to the river, and he's picked five stones. And he famously says to the giant, You come against me with sword and javelin, but I come against you with the Lord of hosts. That, that perspective, we would see that this guy was nine feet tall. David sees that the poor Philistine doesn't stand a chance because he's going against him with God. And so the Philistine is going to lose. So why does he need five stones? Surely one would have done. Well, he's a human being just like the rest of us. And he believes that God has the power. But is it just niggling at the back of his mind that God might not have the will to deliver him that day? That it might be part of God's will that he should be killed by a giant defending the people? I don't know. But it's really interesting when you look at the Old Testament characters who are people of great faith they're still entitled to have a little bit of anxiety. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego are a great example of this. They say, we will not worship your golden statue no matter what you do. And our God is able to deliver us from your fiery furnace, O King Nebuchadnezzar. And then they qualify it and they say, and even if he does not, We're still going to live a life that's worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'm paraphrasing. They're saying no matter what happens, we are still going to serve our living God. We're not going to bow down to your statue. So you can throw us into your fiery furnace if you like. Now, it would be great if the Bible said that God saved them from the fiery furnace. He didn't. He saved them from the heat. That's a whole different set of experiences (laughs) They still had to go through the fiery furnace. But when they counted the people in the fiery furnace, there was an extra one. And God was in there with them. And that's what it's all about, is to believe that God is with us. He's bigger than any problem that we might face, no matter how big the giant. And he loves us. It's interesting, Daniel had very similar experiences not that long afterwards. It would be nice if God had saved Daniel from the lion's den, but he didn't. He saved Daniel from the lion's mouth. That, again, was a whole different set of experiences. Was Daniel worried? I think he probably was. I think if I was spending the night with half a dozen lions locked in a den... I don't think that I would be bouncing around with joy but God delivered Daniel from the lion's mouth and protected him. Even if he does not. In this world, said Jesus, you will have trouble but fear not for I have overcome the world. So, suffering as a Christian, this is such a difficult subject. I don't think King David would ever have being able to declare that he had a trouble-free life. It was full of trouble. But every challenge he saw as an opportunity to draw close to God, every challenge he saw as an opportunity for prayer, for service, for advancing his relationship with God. And he said, Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me, Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. That's a really, really strange thing for an experienced shepherd to say. The rod and the staff are not pleasant experiences for sheep. But he said, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I had a hike through the, the, uh, the desert in Israel one time. We met a shepherd called Avrahim. I've probably told you this story before. And uh, Abraham was was chatting away to us, and at one point he suddenly took out a, a long stick, a fearsome-looking thing, and I thought, "Whoa! Have we upset him?" And uh, and he ran off, and he went down to his sheep that were down on the the Kidron River, and he started thumping the backs of these sheep. Now I know they've got a lot of wool in their backs, but I think that was still sore. And he drove them away, and he poured water from his well. And then he explained to us through an interpreter that the Kidron Valley's got a lot of sewage in it. And he said, if I let the sheep drink that water, they get very, very ill. He said, I only want them to, if they're thirsty, they've got to drink from my well because that's safe and it's clean. And the thought just occurred to me, the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. That means I'm a sheep. That's not that complimentary. At no point in that episode did Abraham sit down with his sheep and say now look sheep. The reason that I'm beating you over the backside is because there are toxins in the water because of failures in the sewage system. And if you drink that water I'm going to have to put you on antibiotics because of your digestive system. And the reason Abraham didn't tell them that was because they were sheep. And they wouldn't get it. And the whole of the book of Job is about this. That Job wants God to explain himself and at the end of it God says, were you there when I laid the foundation of the earth? And he says, no. He says, well, I'm not going to tell you then. We have to have faith that our shepherd is big is powerful he has a plan he's got our best interests at heart he's far wiser than we will ever be and that what he does and what he thinks and what he plans are beyond us completely beyond us isaiah is told my ways are not your ways," says the lord as high as the heavens are above the earth so much higher are my ways than your ways says the lord so how high is that it's pretty high i was reading an interesting statistic um, that if we do manage to get a spacecraft to get to a million miles an hour that's the big holy grail because if you can get a spacecraft to go at a million miles an hour then you could leave here today and arrive at the sun on thursday i mean that's pretty impressive But if you wanted to go to the next nearest star, you'd have to keep up that million miles an hour for the next two and a half thousand years. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, says the Lord. So, he's not going to explain everything in his plan to us. It's very rare in Scripture that God actually sits down with a human being and says, This is my plan. This is what's going to happen. There are a couple of very rare occasions and they're really quite moving to read. One of them's in Genesis 15 where God actually sits with Abraham and says, Abraham, here's what's going to happen. And he sets out the next 600 years of history and he says, your descendants will come back here, but not for a while because the sins of the Amorites are not yet complete. That's pretty scary stuff. The Amorites headquarters was the city of Jericho. And 600 years later, the Jewish people go full circle through Egypt and they come back. Egypt gets lots of mentions in the Bible. Shokran, Masalaam. That's that's my total Arabic right there. Okay. mumkin badin. So they get to Egypt and they come out of Egypt and they go back to Canaan. And as they get through Canaan... The first city that gets destroyed is the capital of the Amorites. That's very, very unusual for God to sit down. He does it with Daniel. Daniel's 10, 11, 12. You can go and read that and you'll see a set out of the next thousand years. And then a bit of explanation about our time as well. And it it all gets very confusing when you come to Revelation. But it's unusual for God to sit down and tell us what the plan is. He says, trust me. Come with me. And whatever happens, live your life in a way that is honoring to Jesus, as Jocelyn put it. God works all things together for good to those that love him. And when we look at that verse, in this world, you will have trouble. I think it's helpful to just choose which word you emphasize. You could emphasize it the way we normally do. In this world, you will have trouble. Or you could emphasize it slightly differently. You could say, in this world, you will have trouble. Because you're not going to have any trouble in the next world. It's all temporary. And this is one of the beautiful things about the book of Job, about the whole history of the Jews. God gives evil a permit But he gives evil a limit and it cannot go beyond that limit. You imagine the thief on the cross and he turns to Jesus and he says to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus doesn't say anything to him about his past sin or his track record or his attendance at the synagogue or anything like that. He says, today you will be with me in paradise. And then after that, Jesus dies. And he's still alive. And he might have looked across at Jesus and thought, I wonder if I really am going to paradise today. And he's still in pain. You think, well, hang on a minute. He just become a Christian. How is he still in pain if he's just become a Christian? Surely if you become a Christian, all your problems are solved and, and, uh, and everything's glorious from then on. Well, no, it's not what the Bible teaches. But look at it from today's perspective for the thief on the cross, two hours of pain, 2,000 years of paradise. The Queen's been in heaven for a week already. What's she seeing? Who's she meeting? Do you think she's sad? I mean, there's a lot of tears being shed on the earth, and quite rightly too, she was a wonderful woman and a wonderful Christian too. It's been great to see all the journalists having to admit that what drove that woman was her Christian faith. And no matter what happened, of somebody who lived a life that was worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And, and why is that so important? Well, it's, it's important because of our testimony, If we compromise our testimony, we're tarnishing the name of our Lord. David again says, Lord, you lead me in paths of righteousness for your name's sake. Your name in Hebrew was like your reputation. For your name's sake, you lead me in paths of righteousness. And so daily we have to say, no matter what our circumstances, all for Jesus. All for Jesus. Nothing else is going to matter in the long term. When the Lord finally brings everything to an end, he's going to melt down the stars and the planets. He's going to create a new heaven and a new earth. And the only thing that he thinks is worth keeping from the old one is us. An inheritance of nations is the prize for which he died. And so it's only reasonable that we should try in all circumstances to have blind faith that trusts God through gritted teeth, whether we understand what he's doing or not, and try to live our lives in a way that is worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I'll just leave you with one last thought. Jesus was the perfect example And he lived and walked in a broken world. And he was tempted by sin. And he had to cope with bereavement. And he had to cope with bullying and torture and humiliation. And he was the one that allowed the thorns to grow when the fall. But he's also the one that wore them so that we could be saved from the consequences of sin. And he told the story, and it's a tough story to read, but again, it's there in Scripture. We have to face up to the truth of it. You'll find it in Matthew 13. Jesus said, the farmer went out and he sowed his seed, and the enemy came and sowed weeds and thorns and so on in between. And the workers came and said to the farmer, do we go and pull out the bad stuff? And the farmer says, no, no. I'm going to let good and bad coexist until the harvest. That's what the Bible teaches. The wheat will be stronger if we leave the weeds in place. And so for all of us, We're going to have some level of suffering, some level of uncertainty, your fair share of worries. And for some, it will be worse than others. But it's got a limit. It's only in this world and in the next world. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There'll be no more tears, no more crying. No more dying, no more pain. And we're going to be there an awful lot longer than we are here. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for our Lord Jesus Christ, who for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down at the right hand of the Majesty on high. And Lord, you call us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men that we will not grow weary and lose heart. Help us, Lord, we pray, in all circumstances, whatever happens, to live a life that is worthy of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask these things in his name. Amen.